Welcome to IndieWire's Very Good TV Podcast. My name is Ben Travers, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Liz on the Twitter. And uh, we're here to talk to you this week about everything that you love about television. But more specifically, we're going to get into the golden age of TV in general. And you guys, I want you to know that Ben was really nervous just then about doing the introduction, but he, I think he did a great job. I think Personally. I did an okay job. It, it could probably be better, but we're not one for rehearsals here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you didn't mention your Twitter address, which is your your Benty Travers. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like they probably don't know that, so you, we should say that again. I am at Ben T. Travers. I, yes. We never go over that stuff. I, I don't know. We should we should be better about social media. What is yes the, the Twitters and the whatnots? Yeah, all of those things. But, uh, but yeah, this week's topic is uh, we're going to try to get into a little bit of why the golden age, the so-called golden age of television that we're all very much enjoying right now, which has led to a huge creative boom in just hundreds of new shows and original scripted programming. Um, we're going to talk about how that's kind of skewing a little bit more to- towards drama and helping out the dramas a little bit more than it seems to be helping out the comedies, and whether or not that idea is factual. Yeah, and this is all springboarding off an interview we did recently. It- actually a while back, that we finally got around to running this week uh, with uh, Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan, uh, who are the creators of the Jim Gaffigan show on TV Land, which just got renewed for a second season. And the thing, Ben, do you have the quote handy from good old Jim? Oh, man. Uh, Hold on, I do. I've got it right here. He said... uh, so at first he started talking a little bit about syndication, and then he said he more he was more focused on making shows that Jeannie and he wanted to make, like just the shows that they want to watch. And then the exact quote that we're kind of talking about is, we're in the golden age of dramas. And I think that the way comedies are made, they're made from a fiscal responsibility rather than a point of view responsibility. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the thing about what he said is that there are, of course, tons of counterexamples to, what, to you know, the idea that comedy is a more mercenary game, I suppose, like that it doesn't, that there isn't room for self-expression in comedy. But it is an interesting point that, you know, we talk about, when we talk about the quote-unquote golden age of TV, we don't necessarily leap to the comedies first. We, you know, it's the dramas that get brought up as the examples of this great, great age of television. Yeah, absolutely, because they're definitely the ones that officially or unofficially kicked it off. I mean, when you think about kind of the beginning of all of that, you always kind of trace your way back, starting maybe like Breaking Bad and then Mad Men and then The Sopranos, and then you just kind of keep going back. But most of the ones that come immediately to mind are dramas, and that's kind of what's established where we're at right now. And for me, at least, I guess when people talk about the golden age of TV, I didn't think about separating them until I read that quote. That quote was kind of like a trigger for me to be like, oh, I need to kind of reassess this and think to myself whether or not the kind of creative stimulus that's out there for TV in general is helping one side more than the other. Well, I think one of the other elements to it, too, is that, you know, whereas I think pretty much every goddamn network at this point has their attempt at a scripted premium drama, there aren't as many, like, there are a couple of key networks, like, we were just talking about, like, AMC, uh, AMC's kind of eschewed the real comedy comedy genre. Uh, NBC basically has abandoned it entirely, which is a, kind of an amazing thing from a network that 
you know, was the home of must-see TV for decades. Oh, yeah, and NBC is a great example of kind of how the golden age of TV has affected broadcast television very specifically in terms of comedy, because like you mentioned, I mean, they had Cheers and Friends and Seinfeld, like all of these just iconic television shows, and many more before that, uh, you know, that were comedies that really kept that network going. They were the, they were the biggest draw on the network for a long period of time, and then kind of as cable started to emerge and then the streaming network started to emerge and the golden age, you know, officially became uh, what it was, they had hits. They had stuff like 30 Rock, which did very well in the awards season um, and raked in a ton of accolades but could never really get a huge ratings game behind it. And they had a, a few other series that really sparked well and played well. But those shows never delivered the same kind of performance that NBC needed from a broadcast standpoint, and then that led to them abandoning Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt after originally having it signed up to go on their network and, and handing it off to Netflix because they just didn't think it would be a good fit for them. They could see them going down another 30 Rock path, and they don't know how to sell that, or they just can't sell it to a wide enough audience. Yeah, looking at the NBC schedule right now, uh, there are two scripted comedies on it, both of which are multi-camera, only one of which is returning for a sec. Uh, for a, this will be this will be in Dable's third season, but they're going to be on Friday nights. And though one of the primary reasons that Undateable is sticking around is that they recently they made the conversion to an, a live format, so every episode will be recorded live for you, the audience. And ergo, hopefully, you will tune in live the same way that you tuned in to watch Carrie Underwood sing uh, "The Sound of Music." Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure everyone will be live tweeting undateable uh throughout the season but uh but yeah i mean it, it's it's a great example and, and that in particular just the like the single cam versus multicam aspect of of sitcoms has been greatly affected by this and you would think i mean if you especially if you use something like 30 rock and unbreakable kimmy schmidt and veep there's great examples out there of shows that have benefited from kind of making themselves more cinematic and I don't know if that necessarily makes them funnier, but it does kind of increase the pace. It, it seems to include a lot of jokes, a lot more jokes in there than uh, maybe in broadcast TV, which gets broken up by uh, by the laugh track and, and a few other like commercial breaks and other things like that. But um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 not quite. They don't. They're not given the same credence as dramas, at least in my mind. At least when I'm the examples I'm thinking of right now. Yeah, I mean. And the, the question is, of course, like, what's the best environment for comedy to thrive versus drama to thrive? And this is something you touched on today a bit, which is uh, in a think piece you wrote about how, you know, why can't community and uh, difficult people on Hulu, oh, communities on Yahoo, uh, Unbreakable Commission on Hulu, um, not Unbreakable Commission, good Lord, uh, difficult people's on Hulu. And, you know, the fact is that they're being released weekly whereas they might be getting better play if they were released all at once so you could, in fact, binge your way through it. Yeah, I, I honestly do believe that that's a huge case, and I, I understand why the streaming networks are doing what they're doing, especially Yahoo and Hulu, because they do need to become entertainment hubs just like Netflix. I mean, 99% of the people I know who binge-watch anything are binge-watching Netflix, and then they don't really go outside of that. If they're looking for something to watch on a random night of the week, they're just going to turn on Netflix and start scrolling. And these other streaming networks want to become that. And to do that, they need people to keep coming back, 
to see that they have other content, to explore that content, and then start to realize that they're just as much of a hub as Netflix is, or, or, or could be in the future, and, and people will recognize that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that definitely speaks to kind of the best place for comedy to be viewed and appreciated. I mean, I don't know... I think with both of us, Liz, we've we've appreciated things on pretty much every side of the aisle. It just depends on how, just depends on the style of the show. I mean, we love Parks and Rec, and we would put that up there with the best of the comedies for the last seven years, right? Right, absolutely. And that was a broadcast comedy, so I mean, obviously that worked perfectly for what it was. And I mean, I definitely enjoy binge watching that on Netflix, but it's not the exclusive way to appreciate the humor within that show. Whereas something like uh, something like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I think plays very well to the Netflix standard and and kind of watching that a few times all the way through at my own pace, deciding when to take breaks and when to like re-examine things. I think that worked really well for that show specifically because of how fast it was and because of how many hidden gems are in there. You can kind of reappreciate things all over again as you go through it again and again and again. Yeah, I yeah, it's, it's funny like you know, the weekly, the weekly, weekly versus binge viewing is, it's such a tricky beast. Like, I remember that I, I remember that, uh, you know, we got screeners for the comeback on HBO last, last, uh, last fall, and it was kind of embarrassing how fast I just kind of blew through them all. Like, <laughs> I, that's a show that everyone else was enjoying, that, that's a show that, that did deserve to be enjoyed weekly and kind of get the opportunity to build. But as soon as I got even like two episodes, I was watching both of them all at once. I understand completely what you mean. Whenever I'm, especially if I'm reviewing something on a weekly basis, I always try to stay with it week by week. I don't try to go ahead. So I don't know something the viewer doesn't, but there's so many shows, especially with Veep. When I was given access to Veep ahead of time, that was really hard for me to kind of stay with it as it came because I just love that show, and you want to just keep going with it. If something's making you laugh, there's it's hard to imagine a reason to stop, like a reason to take a break. Yeah, um, and I mean, I think uh, here's the question now: How does that affect our enjoyment of it? Does that affect our perception of it as a prestige level project? I think what's interesting about that question is more kind of what it takes to uh, to appreciate comedy as something prestigious in general. Like, the dramas out there that are, you know, very important or, or broad-thinking or, or, or just have a lot of uh, cultural significance, I mean, you know, the Mad Men's and, and, and the Breaking Bads and, and even, you could argue, even House of Cards, which is kind of soapy, but a lot of these kind of dramas have, you know, such obvious and such strict, like, very serious tones and, and, and kind of bring up all these weighty, uh, reflective issues, whereas comedy is something that's supposed to be a little lighter, it's supposed to be a little more fun, you're supposed to kind of be able to, to just, just purely enjoy it and, and move on from there. So the idea of adding prestige to something where you're laughing for 30 minutes straight isn't the easiest idea for, I mean, obviously Emmy voters, Golden Globe voters to attach themselves to, but, I mean, it's it's something we're seeing kind of change with awards in particular, especially with the debate over whether Orange is the New Black was a comedy or a drama, and now kind of where you've got Transparent making this huge charge at the Emmys. Uh, some people are saying it's going to win Outstanding Comedy Series this year. 
which would be a huge win for Amazon, but also seems more like a show that's kind of a drama sneaking into the comedy territory and stealing a prize when it's not a laugh-a-minute kind of thing like your Veeps or your Unbreakable Kimmy Schmitz. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. At the same time, like, I'm, I'm, like, the thing I'm trying to think about is, you know, there's this part of me that wants to say that maybe the prestige element comes from, like, some uh, incorporating some level of darkness. Like, but at the same time, like, you can't say that's the case of something like Modern Family, which has taken home the Emmy how many years running now? Uh, it's been five. It's going for the record this year. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't know. I don't think we'd, we'd call Modern Family a prestige project, but at the same time, like, that's an incredible legacy. Yeah, Modern Family is actually a fascinating example to, to kind of look at because the other record, or the, the, the show that it's sharing the record with right now, uh, Frasier, was probably as close as you could get to a prestige comedy before the golden age of television came along. I mean, it was just very intellectual writing, well, intellectual dialogue and kind of high speaking. Uh, it was very classy. Yes, it was a very classy show. Like it, it wanted to be extremely classy, and it, it that appealed very well to the older vo- voters in the TV Academy. And Modern Family is not that kind of show, and a lot of people have started to rag on it in the last few years because the writing has dipped a little bit, and because people are just kind of sick of it winning again and again and again when there's other shows out there like Louie and Veep that haven't been rewarded yet. But uh, but you're right. I don't think anyone would make an argument for Modern Family being a prestige comedy unless they brought in the Emmys that it's got in its back pocket. Unless they could point to the gold and say that's prestigious because it's gold. I don't think there's a lot of an argument there to hold water. Yeah, I mean, with Louis, what's interesting? Louis is, I think, the really interesting example to bring up here because Louis, I think exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the idea of prestige comedy. You know, it's a very singular, autourish point of view. It has real human depth to it while also still occasionally just being incredibly funny. Uh, It doesn't pull a ton of punches, if any punches at all. And, you know, it doesn't, it's it's, it's unflinching in a way you'd expect from something from this, from, from FX. Yeah, and it also has a good share of episodes that are kind of straight drama. Like, there's there's going to be a few jokes in there, but especially if you look back on last season when he was kind of having his flashbacks when he was a kid and he was uh, you know going through all of these really serious issues with Jeremy Renner's character. Uh, like, that whole plot line was very dark and very serious and gave it, you know, kind of an extra weight that you just can't imagine being placed on something like Modern Family uh, on something like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, even though that has a dark, you know, premise behind it as well. But, like, laying that out there on an episode-by-episode basis, it, it kind of changes the argument a little bit. It kind of changes what makes it... Is it the drama that makes it prestigious, or is it the ability to inject drama or inject serious subject matter into a comic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's funny... Uh... I, I, I really, but I, I, I'm going to say there's a joke from this most recent season of Louie I really enjoyed where I think it's it's an early episode in the season and Louie's about to trigger some sort of like clearly artsy flashback and Pamela Adlin's character just shuts it down. She's yeah. just like, no, we're not doing that. 
And yeah. I think it speaks really, it, it speaks well to the fact that the, 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 this season tried deliberately to be pretty different from the season before and the season before that. Because one of the things about Louis C.K. is that he's a guy who doesn't like to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that to me, especially with that example of what Pamela Adlon brings to the table, is going to be very interesting when her show comes out. And even though her show in premise sounds a little bit like Louis itself, or at least that it could follow in that kind of lead, uh, it, it, I think the pairing of them and the contrast of them and her style and what she'll do with it will be a fascinating thing for comedy in general, uh, because she's a very funny person. She's extremely funny, but she's got a very dry, sharp humor that's that's kind of different than, than a lot of things we've kind of grown to accept on TV. So I'm pretty excited for that show and to see kind of what that does and how people react to it. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a very distinct personality, I think, is the key there. And, you know, even if it comes off as abrasive, it still will, it's still, it, you know, it's the same thing where it's like, you know, you can watch the people on You're the Worst be kind of the worst human beings, and it's still really entertaining. So it'll be interesting to see if that sort of, that sort of unlikable protagonist trope can translate. And you... I don't know why it triggered on You're the Worst and none of the other countless examples we've mentioned right now, but that's another kind of instance that uh, has been brought up and made more prominent during the golden age of TV for comedy, which is the serialized storytelling. I mean, before, there, a lot of the stuff on broadcast was something you could tune into for one week, you'd miss three weeks, you'd tune back in, and you wouldn't miss a beat. And now, especially with a show like You're the Worst, you can definitely kind of go in and out of it but you're going to miss a lot of the depth that's that's kind of tucked away within this serial story. And, and a lot of shows have incorporated that aspect to, to great success. They're using it for a lot of different callbacks, for just the jokes in and of itself. But it's a, it's a sign of strong writing that's, that's coming through in comedy, which is, which is just so welcome in, in this world. Yeah, I'm going, to blow, I'm going to blow listeners' minds right now a little bit. I'm going to do two things. One is... I'm well. One is I'm going to mention that if you are playing the drinking game where every time we say the golden age of television, please don't do that because that's that's probably not going to work out well for you in the long run for this podcast. Yeah, only if you're the, Irish can you keep doing that right now. Yes. The other thing is I'm going to be the one to bring up Friends. Yes. Good job, Liz. All right. Um, as opposed to Ben doing it as he is wont to do. Uh, but I wanted to bring up Friends as an interesting example. Of, that's about as groundbreaking as a '90s sitcom could get when it comes when it came to having at least a especially in the early seasons. It had a couple of really strong plot threads. You had Ross dealing with his lesbian ex-wife and her lover and their pregnancy and then eventual birth. Uh, and then you had the Ross Rachel will they won't they storyline, and that was definitely something that played out over multiple episodes. And you'd have to be paying attention to be sure. I mean, it was kind of it kind of happened in stages. You know, you've got the first stage of Ross has a crush, Rachel doesn't know. Then you've got the Rachel finds out. Then you've got Ross and Rachel get together, and then you've got they go on a break, and then we don't talk about friends anymore. Well, you don't talk about friends, Liz. But what I love about that example is that people would make the counter-argument that you could still tune into Friends and pick up what's going on and understand, oh, Ross and Rachel still are together. Well, I'm sure there's some sexual tension there, whatever. We're just waiting for that in the final episode, and then it'll happen. But the counter to that is what made that show so satisfying throughout and what made it able to sustain that lengthy romance which other shows have tried and can't pull off. Cough, How I Met Your Mother, Cough. 
was that there was an intricacy and there was a specificity to what they were doing with these people in each episode. So you would see how their relationship was developing on an episode-by-episode basis, and it's something that you can really appreciate and really fall in love with now that it's available on Netflix. So you can just binge right through it. You're going to understand where you are. Each season has a very different flavor, and each episode within that season kind of cooks it, cooks that relationship to just the right temperature so you know where they're at. And then you can kind of appreciate those little moments that they share together. And then that's how the audience just remains engaged for as long as they did and why it was such a great payoff in that series finale. I mean, but it's important, I think, to remember, though, that the Netflix, it only the show only recently arrived on Netflix. Yeah, it was And it, in the years yeah. past, though, it was just, you know, you would just happen to stumble upon syndication. Sure. And that's, that's uh, watching a, sh- picking a random episode of a TV show that's in syndication is like, I don't, it's like firing a dart at a dartboard with 200 slots in it. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy, and, and you're not going to land on a good one every time unless you're watching Friends or Seinfeld. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, Friends is a great example of kind of how that serialization came along. And then kind of to, to elaborate on that, on the argument of, of what else could be affecting this golden age is just that there's so much TV out there. I mean, we can come up with a ton of good comedic examples, and we may not be able to come up with as many that would fit into the prestige category or that you'd be able to talk about uh, in the same vein as a lot of the dramas that are given such weight and such credence. But, I mean, there's so much television, there's so many options, and so it's so competitive that that's mm-hmm. led to a lot of better TV. Well, it also speaks to something that it, it speaks to something that you say all the time, which is that comedy is harder than drama. I do say that, and I believe it. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I've been I've been looking back at Key and Peele uh, for the last couple of days because you know it's it, it's series finales coming next week, and the thing with Key and Peele is I've always the it, it's sketch, and the thing with sketch comedy is some sketches by default you will either will either be better than other sketches or you will respond in a different way to them. Like, a sketch, one, you know, one sketch, a sketch about Gremlins 2 is going to be funnier to me than a sketch where it's just them making funny, doing funny voices about terrorists. I don't know, it's because, and mostly because I, the Gremlins 2 jokes were really, really good. But, you know, it's, it's it, so, you know, they, you know, no comedy, sh- is there a comedy out there that has a 100% perfect batting average? I mean, you could make arguments for your favorites, and that's where the subjectivity comes involved comes into play, which is another aspect of comedy that's harder to gauge than drama because you know, people's senses of humor are so different. Whereas when you see something dramatic and important, everyone kind of has a universal response to it. It may change a little bit, and you may have a subjective reaction to the art as a whole, but it's much more subjective when you dig into the comedy. And, and a key appeal is a great example of it because what's amazing about that show, especially to me, it's just that they've been able to sustain such an impressive reputation for putting out consistently great skits, and they're producing so many. Like, they're doing so many per show and then per season, and then they just are able to keep that going and keep that kind of creative machine turning. I, I, I'm really sad to see it go this week, but, I mean, I, I, I can understand why they need to break and, and kind of go do something else for a while. Yeah, and the crazy thing, by the way, is that this... The sketches that are actually make it on air, like that, they barely represent half of what they actually pull on. Right? They have a ton of sketches that they just they just turn out sketch after sketch after sketch, and they just don't produce every single one of them. Yeah, it's an, I mean, it's an it's an impressive ability. It's it's one of those talents 
that definitely takes a lot of, of craft and attention and hard work and, and just an incredible work ethic in general. Um, but a lot of people are just going to chalk it up to they're just funny people, and that's the end of it. Whereas people will talk about hours and hours of of the the attention and the weight of a drama and, and how hard it was to write this screenplay and construct this scene and put these people where they needed to be and the, the blocking and the, the cinematography and like adding all of these things up to make it some great masterpiece, whereas they'll look at a comedy and just be like, yeah, that scene was funny, and then they'll leave it alone, which is kind of what I want to work against, especially if you're going to look at just the beauty of it and probably the best argument for why we may be in the golden age of TV comedy is something like Veep, where everything comes together. I mean, that entire ensemble is just perfect. The blocking that they use, combined with the writing, combined with that just fast-paced dialogue, is just astounding to me in every episode. And somehow, every season, they made it faster and tighter and more effective. And that was just something that, that, that really spoke to me. And I, it felt like the most objective way to look at comedy where you could just say, oh my god, look at what these people are doing. Whether or not this is your type of humor, you know, fine. Just just go whatever way you need to go with it. But objectively speaking, if you look at the, the aesthetic choices they're making and the decisions and, and, again, the creative energy, like, it's just astounding. Yeah, I think, like, Veep, Veep is a great example of a show that has such a cleanly defined aesthetic that you have to admire it just for having something of a distinct point of view and visual, visual, a distinct visual point of view, which is exactly the sort of thing we're talking about here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know we're going to get flooded with responses on this one. At least I hope we're going to get flooded with responses on this. We love hearing from you guys. Um, but I mean, if you guys have some examples that maybe we missed out on of just prestigious comedies that, that, that not, not are just your favorites, but that you really feel you know, speak to a higher level than, than other comedy. We'd love to hear them. Uh, just, you know, email us, Liz at IndieWire.com, Ben at IndieWire.com. Again, hit us up on Twitter and Facebook and all that. But, uh, but yeah, I hope uh, hope you enjoyed and got something out of the discussion. Yeah. Um, ben, I'm going to ask you for one transcendent moment from a comedy that you you can recall off the top of your head. Oh, my God. A transcendent moment from comedy. I can answer this question already. So no, you I go ahead. I need a minute to think it over. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say just that one of mine has to be the, ser- the season finale, the second season finale of The Comeback, uh, which made a really bold choice in terms of kind of, I, I'm not going to, no spoilers, but it made a few really bold choices in terms of just how the show approached um, its, its entire format. And then also gave... Lisa Kudrow does some amazing material for in terms of acting to play with, and it's just a it's a beautiful moment, and a beautiful way to end the season, and it made me cry. Um, I mean, comedies making comedies can make me cry as often as dramas. I definitely sobbed. I think I started crying during the uh, Parks and Rec series finale at like minute four, <laughs> and I stopped eventually, but it was off and on pretty much for that whole hour. You stopped eventually, but it was like three or four days later, and, and you were finally <laughs> starting to forget about it. Well, not forget, but push it out of your mind. Exactly. Uh, actually, Parks and Rec is a great example of kind of a transcendent moment in comedy. I'm not going to, it won't be my first moment, but when, when Leslie in season four wins the election at the, end of the, at the end of that campaign run against Paul Rudd, and she gives her speech, and frankly, everything to do with Paul Rudd during that final episode is just 
outstanding to me. It's one of the, the pinnacle achievements of comedy in the last you know, decade or more. Um, but if I was just going to speak to a transcendent moment that's purely funny, I would go to the One with the Embryos episode of Friends, which is constantly mentioned as the best episode of Friends, and I have to agree. It, I mean, it, it's just a perfect episode of television. But when they're all gathered around that table answering lightning round questions about one another, it's like the show finally reached its peak. It really just hit its moment where this is what it wanted to be about, this is what they want to discuss, and everything they're saying is so amazingly relatable to the audience that I can't I don't know anyone who didn't have an immediate connection to that and I don't know I don't have any friends who don't quote that to me at least, you know, once a week. Like it's just something that just keeps coming up. So I, I think that's probably my moment. I, I go back to that again and again and it's something when it pops up on those syndicated reruns, I can't turn it off. Out of curiosity, what season is that? That's season four. Okay. Interesting. I'll have to check that. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen that one, so I'll have to, I'll have to rewatch on your recommendation. Yeah, that's right, actually. That's right after they went on a break. So, Well, uh, not, not after they went on a break. After they had the fight about being on a break and whether or not that mattered and went to the beach house and all that. Then the break makes me so mad. <laughs> I know it is, but that speaks to the brilliance of the show. That, that it, that, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, but no, let's uh, let's wrap this up, Liz. What was the best thing you saw last week? Well, beyond the Key and Peel, I was rewatching. Uh, I've been checking in on this USA show called Plain House. That is, it stars two young two women whose names I'm blanking on, of course, right now. But and I'm to the point where I'm going to go ahead and look them up. Uh, <clears throat> But, oh yes, uh, Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham, and it's a really great example of a small female-led duo drop, a duo comedy that's, it's it's really charming, it's got a lot of interesting, a lot of great casting, uh, Keegan-Michael Key actually plays a major role, mm-hmm. uh, it, lots of great guest stars along the way, uh, and it's, you know, it's a nice little show that I'm, I'm enjoying catching up with, uh, about two women, one of both of whom are going through rough patches in their lives and they're trying to help each other out. And, but they've got this incredible bond of friendship between them that is helping power that. I remember watching the first, I want to say four episodes of that when it first came out. And I really connected with the actors, like the cast as a whole more than I did the show specifically, but I could see how it got even better as time went on. It's only an example of a show that's really driven by its stars beyond its, you know, beyond any complicated writing, but there's some really good, there's some really great bits to it yeah. that I, I've been really enjoying. So, Ben, what's the best thing you saw last week? Uh, the best thing I saw last week was, without a doubt, Jake Arietta's no-hitter for the Cubs. That was uh, fantastic, but since we're, you know, no one cares about sports, uh, I'm definitely going to put a plug in for one of the best comedies on TV right now, which is You're the Worst. Um, I watched the first two episodes again in preparation for a review next week, and um, season two starts on Tuesday. And I, I, I just I can't say enough good things about this show. It's it's very well done. It, it the, all the cliches about it, you know, flipping the rom com on its head are true, but they're also they don't give it enough weight and enough credit for what it's doing on top of that. Like these are two very unique characters. They're not just designed to work against a genre or work against expected. Uh, expected plot developments 
they just they work. They're very relatable human people who do awful things sometimes, but for the best reasons. And um, it's it's incredibly funny. So I, I can't recommend that one any higher. Nice. Uh, what about you, Liz? What's the next thing that you're gonna watch soon? Uh it's funny, Ben. I think the next thing I'm looking forward to checking out is The Leftovers Season 2. Oh, Leftovers. That's what I like to hear. Yes, I know that's what you like to hear. Oh, Always. how I know it. So much. But I'm actually, like, uh, some some potential interview opportunities have come up that mean that it, I, but when next we speak uh, on this humble podcast, I may have actually seen some of Leftovers Season 2. And whilst, of course, I will have no spoilers to give, uh, I am looking forward to, pop, you know, busting busting that one open. You lucky, lucky lady. I mean, God, that's. I mean, talk about TV comedies. <laughs> I mean, it is a laugh a minute romp from beginning to end. The leftovers. <laughs> and, I mean, certainly season one was, and so I can't wait for season two to just, you know, you know, talk about amping up the laughs. We need to get nothing. That. Nothing says adding. Nothing says comedy gold like adding regina king to your show oh well of course we need, i mean we need to get that quote in in wording like in, in on the site somewhere so that hbo can find it pick it up throw it on a poster and we'll just be all good to go yeah so then what about you what's the next thing you're looking forward to well Liz, i mean you kind of hinted at it with your choice i've been choosing the leftover season two as kind of a kind of a gag for the last few weeks and and kind of you know to reemphasize the point that not enough of you are watching the leftovers um so i thought this week i'd i'd kind of shift gears and i'd pick something new that's coming out i mean there's a lot coming out it's fall we're getting ready for some things it's it's a good time of year um and i found this like this little comedy that's coming out on uh oh man i can't remember the network um, it might be like a web series or something, but um, it's about this, this small town in upstate New York where uh, 2% of the world's population just disappears <laughs> at random. Um, you know, I can't remember the title of it, but I'll put it on the, I'll put it on the website. So I'll, I'll bring it up again once I can pull that up. I just can't remember much more. I loved it, though. I, just, I can't wait to see it. I'm really excited. I think... Um, isn't isn't like uh, isn't like the guy who plays the blind guy on Daredevil season one? Isn't he in it? Yeah, Scott Glenn. He was in. Um, he's been in a bunch of great stuff. I love Scott Glenn, and he is in it. And he plays the dad. He's almost like a tertiary character. Yeah, so and the guy who's like the ninth doctor, who was the ninth doctor on Doctor Who. He's like a preacher. I wouldn't know about that, but uh, but there. I mean, Jennifer Aniston's husband is definitely in it. Oh, and, Justin Theroux. Yeah, he's a big deal. Yeah, he's um, a, he's hilarious. He wrote Tropic Thunder. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't say it any better, Liz. Uh, yeah, he wrote Tropic Thunder. Great so time. yeah, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're blanking on the name of this comedy starring Justin Theroux about what happens when two percent of the world's population vanishes, but. I'm sure you'll be able to track it down somehow, guys. You know what I'll do? I'll make sure to include this again next week for my pick. Because it yeah, come out we'll look at the title like next time. Like we'll actually, we'll actually be prepared for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll actually do my homework like I never do otherwise. So, uh, But yeah, uh, that, that's my pick. And uh, I hope everybody eventually watches it whenever I figure out what it is. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers. And you can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet with an I and an E. 
That's correct. And you can go to IndieWire.com for all of our musings about the television world uh, in print form. That includes reviews, features, think pieces, interviews, lots of interviews coming up. Lots of people we talked to recently that we have to now put into text form and put on the internet. But you're going to like it. They're all going to be good. There's a you know, looking, Look forward to a big feature this week uh, featuring... Every interesting cast member of the league. That's a burn on Mark Duplass, who I didn't actually get a chance to talk to, but oh. it's okay. I understand. Also, we talk a lot to Mark Duplass, so I wasn't that worried. Yeah, he's pretty busy right now, anyway, so it's okay. But that'll yeah. be that'll be fun. And if you can't get enough of the IndieWire interviews, make sure you check out our other podcast because our editor in chief Dana Harris interviews the most important people in Hollywood on her IndieWire Influencers podcast every Monday. And uh, also, Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson are always talking to interesting people, and all of those wonderful film folk are getting ready for the festival circuit that's coming right now. Lots of Oscar contenders out there, so you're going to want to start tuning in to know what you need to see this season. Yeah, it's uh, going to be it's lots of exciting stuff, I think, coming up. Like, lots of interesting movies for once. You bet, yeah. I mean, who goes to movies anymore, but uh, I guess yeah. now might be a good time. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hedging, hedging bets, you know. Just in case this TV thing doesn't work out. Yeah, because it's some sort of fad. Yeah. Mark, uh, uh, Ron Perlman doesn't think it's going to last forever. In an interview we published last week, uh, Ron Perlman was like, yeah, you know, I don't think this is going to last forever. I'm just being, he, he was being, he's, he admits he's being cynical, but, you know, who yeah. knows? All good things must end. Yeah. Including this podcast. But thank you guys again so much for listening. And until next time, keep watching television. <laughs>